Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Thank you. I don't know if we've come in early according to my watch. I was just about to have my emergency chocolate. Um, <laughs> but let's get started. Well, we've heard uh, a lot this morning about processes and practices and how what to patients might seem very simple tweaks in organisation and approach would improve both their experience and their uh, attitude towards the NHS, but I'm sure it's slightly more complicated than it sounds. It's been very interesting hearing about commissioning and integrated health care. All of these, I suppose, are subjects with which most of us here in the room are familiar. So this is the session where we take you somewhere slightly different. Uh, We're going forwards in this session. We're looking at the bright ideas for the future of healthcare uh, and the NHS possibly. I don't know because I don't know what our three speakers are going to come up with in the next 45 minutes, Uh, but you will have plenty of opportunity to test them uh, on their presentations. I'm going to start with Charlie Ledbetter, who is an author and leading authority on innovation and creativity. His current work in progress is on the health service, and it's called Lessons to be Learned from the Developing World. Um, Charlie is a visiting senior fellow at the British National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts. He's a long-standing senior research associate with the influential London think tank Demos and a visiting fellow at Oxford University's Said Business School and the Young Foundation. Uh, He's a co-founder of Participle, which is the Public Service Innovation Agency, uh, and he'll be working with central and local government to devise new approaches to intractable social challenges. Well, here's his first challenge this morning, Charlie. Thank you. So, uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'm going to keep it brief and um, just suggest that Uh, The answer to the big challenge that Stephen Dorrell left us with, which was how do you redesign a £120 billion system that is designed for one set of challenges, infectious disease, their diagnosis, treatment and orderly cure, how do you redesign that for an era not just in which you face huge fiscal challenges, but more importantly you face a change in the kind of problem you face? where health is mainly about ageing, long-term conditions and lifestyle, and where having highly capital-intensive, large institutions in fixed places with very expensive doctors pushing more and more technology at people is probably just going to drive up costs rather than create better solutions at lower cost. So where would you look for solutions to that? Well, you could look, of course, we all look, don't we? I mean, there's a kind of regular probably a regular shuttle to Kaiser Permanente that you could probably go on, or the Mayo Health Clinic, or Cleveland. Uh, And of course you can go to to Sweden. Uh, My answer is that the most important and interesting place to look will be places in the developing world where they don't have many resources. Because actually the most radical models of healthcare will come from extreme places where people face huge needs and have very few resources. And if we want to see what the models of the future might look like, we might go to places that 
imagine health in a completely different way as something that happens in families and communities and is produced by people rather than delivered to them. The whole language of delivery is kind of as if health were a pizza that you could have delivered. Uh, actually, health is something we create and manage. And actually, that's done mainly in relationships, communities, and networks. So this is one place that we should look. These are mentor mothers in a program called Mothers to Mothers, uh, which I'm a keen supporter of. And um, they are, that's a network of HIV-positive mothers who support other mothers so that they can navigate their way through a health system in Kenya and the rest of Southern Africa, which is pretty um, difficult, really. And so this one, it's almost like a piece of spice, what these mothers do. They kind of bring to life an otherwise inert health system and make it much more productive. Second example is the Neighbourhood Network for Palliative Care in Kerala. It's the most impressive palliative care uh, institution in the world that I've ever seen. No one in Kerala dies alone, but there's a handful of doctors. There is no institutionalised palliative care process as we have in this country, but Suresh Kumar, the founder of this movement, decided that what he needed to do was to create a volunteer movement of people who would help other people at the end of life. And it's very, very simple. Anyone who's bedridden and old becomes a potential client of this movement. And when I asked him how he got people involved, he said, we make it fun. I'd, I have no idea how he has managed to make palliative care fun, but in that throwaway remark is a very important truth, which is that the future of healthcare will depend on motivation. If you cannot motivate people to look after their health better and to care for one another, then you've got an inefficient service. If everything depends on delivery, it won't work. So if you look at these models and others in this project that I'm involved in, like them, if you look at what BRAC is doing in Bangladesh with maternal health, or Jacaranda is doing in community health in Kenya, or Medical in Mexico, or the um, family, um, parent and family health program in Brazil, they've all got similar elements, uh, and these are some of them. They first of all change the place where health takes place. Health does not take place primarily in hospitals, doctors' clinics, GP surgeries, but in homes, communities, workplaces. So they change the place. They change the kind of technologies that are used. So there is an entirely new wave of frugal, low-cost, simple, robust, portable, possibly reusable technologies um, which are being developed often in collaboration between the developed and the developing world to help people in place treat uh, conditions or symptoms. So, a uh, very simple one, Monash University in Australia is developing a nasal and a, an inhaler for oxytocin, which is a crucial thing for mothers who are bleeding just after birth. Uh, the traditional method is by injection, for that you need a needle, a syringe, and you need a fridge none of which a mother will have in rural Kenya, but actually an inhaler would work. So there's a whole range of new technologies that's coming. They're changing who does the work. So doing as little with high cost doctors and professionals, doing as much as possible with peers, with nurses, with community nurses, and through self-help. Um, they're changing the nature of health. The, when you go to these kinds of schemes, what they are doing is creating health together. They're not delivering it, they're enabling people to create it and make it, rather than thinking that it's something that comes from professionals. 
And finally, to Stephen Dorrell's point at the end, the sort of famous Tor Bay example of per capita spending, they're changing how it's paid for. So what you see in all of these schemes, well, they're changing how it's paid for. So there's financial innovation at the heart of it, either through cooperative models or vouchers or through per capita spending, but they change who and how it's paid for. And so they're sort of delivering help to the home, with the home, in the home. And in a way, what they're doing is creating the best of truly modern systems, which are networked and distributed, and very old systems. And the trouble with the healthcare industry is it's basically an industrial system. And actually what it should really be is a mixture of the very old and the very new. And so um, I think that's where we should look. And I think that this is what healthcare should be. That actually motivation and mutual support are the most powerful kinds of medicine. And that is the DNA of these schemes. And actually if we want to meet the kind of challenges that Stephen Doyle was talking about, then we will need to import these models. And if there was one thing that I would love to be able to do, it would be to create a center for reverse innovation to bring to the developing world models from the, develop, uh, from the developing world to the developed world where these kinds of approaches are now desperately needed. Thank you, Charlie. I'll ask you about the liability insurance. And you didn't insurance. even throw your handbag at no, me. No, no, no. <laughs> I, was just, I was thinking about the liability insurance as if we were offering help to, um, to people here. Uh, if we were um, going into their homes to help them with palliative care or um, uh, any other kind of care, but I'm sure that's something we'll come to in the questions. Our next speaker is Professor Lewis Wolpert, um, developmental bio biologist, author and broadcaster. I'm sure you all know who Lewis is. He's, um, but just for, for the younger ones, he's a distinguished developmental biologist. He's emeritus professor of biology as applied to medicine at uh, UCL. He is the author of, among others, The Unnatural Nature of Science and Malignant Sadness, which was described by Anthony Storr as the most objective short account of all the various approaches to depression. How We Live and Why We Die was published in 2009, and his most recent book, You're Looking Very Well, in 2011. Lewis. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much. <clears throat> the reason why I've been invited is because I got involved with mental illness about 15 years ago. Can you hear me, actually? Sorry? I'll bring the microphone a bit. Mic Can you hear me now? Yes. Better. Okay. So I, got, I had a very serious depression about 15 years ago, and I didn't understand a thing about it. So when, you know, because before I had my depression, I believed that if you felt a bit low, you pulled your socks up and just got on with it. I'm afraid it isn't quite like that. And I went through a very hard time with my depression, and when I recovered, I tried to find out what depression was about. And one of the points that I really involved in here is that depression and mental illness is really a major problem in our health service. It's claimed that about one in four of us, that's in one in four of you, will at some stage in your life have a mental health problem. It, it, it's enormous. The amount of money and the amount of problems spent on mental health is equivalent probably to all that spent on physical problems. It's really a major problem in, in, in the health service. 
And mental illness, if you think about the young, it's probably an illness that they will discover very early on in their life. If I go to a school, giving a lecture on developmental or something like that, and I happen to say to them, this is a sixth form, how many of you know someone who is depressed? About a third of the class will put up their hands. They haven't a clue what depression really is, and yet they have a great experience of it. And um, mental disorders really, I'm afraid, dominate our lives in, in many ways. And there are a lot of mental disorders. The main ones are depression and anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's. You can't open the paper at the moment without reading about, about Alzheimer's, and autism, of course. And the young know absolutely, virtually nothing about it. And the key point that I want to make in my talk is that mental health education for school children is essential. It's absolutely weird that there is, I can't, I mean, I hunted on the web as to how much health education children get in schools, and maybe someone will, will tell me. They get a bit, but they don't get anything on mental illness. And my key point is that they really ought to be taught about mental illness. And one of the reasons is that this is an illness that they're going to discover very early on, and it is going to affect their lives at some stage or another, and they ought to know what it's about. It also means that if they learn about it, that if they become slightly mentally ill with anxiety or something like that, they will seek help at an earlier stage. Also, their understanding should, in the long run, reduce stigma related to mental illness. There's a huge stigma. Just think about all those members of parliament who must have had depression, who never, ever talk about it. They're very, very silent because of the stigma. I can't tell you who they are, but if it's less than about 20 or 30, I'll eat, I'll eat the paper I'm talking from. So they also, the students also be, ought to be taught a little bit about things. They ought to be, I mean, depression and anxiety are the main ones that are affecting our, our lives. And they ought to be uh, taught about that. And they ought to be taught a little bit about what sort of treatments there are for us. They ought to know what cognitive therapy is. And they certainly shouldn't think that schizophrenia means a split personality which it is not, you know, it, it, it's not about that. And about 1% of the population suffers from schizophrenia. Um, but they ought to really have some understand what it's about. And if you go to some private American schools, not state schools, they actually are well taught about mental health. And in their exam paper after this, they're asked the following. In 40 words, give your opinion as to why an increase in suicide has tripled since your parents were your age. Is the following true or false? A psychologist is a medical doctor and can prescribe drugs. True or false? 
A person suffering from schizophrenia has multiple personalities and describe one possible theory that could cause anorexia. I'm not too good at answering that myself, <laughs> having not done the, 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 the course. And educating students about mental illness like depression does not stop them becoming depressed, but it probably leads to them getting help at an earlier stage. And when I say this about, about teaching them, one would have to teach the teachers also about mental health, and I think educating the public about mental health would be a great advantage. And I would urge, whether it's the Department of Education or the Department of Medicine, to do something about this. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. Um, I have to say, as a, a parent who only discovered how much uh, mental health is uh, a problem amongst teenagers in recent years, that, uh, that certainly strikes a chord. Uh, and I'm sure that will also be tested in our uh, question and answer session, which follows after Michael Ash. Um, now, medical care in the 21st century is changing dramatically. But at the centre of every problem, there is an individual who is often lost amongst the desire to name, blame and treat their dis-ease. The consequence, as we move to a position where the primary cause of need for care is from chronic, not acute disease, is a disconnect, a loss of relationship, and as a consequence, an increased risk of failure of recovery, not only for the individual, but for society. Functional medicine emerged in the USA over 20 years ago as a unifying approach to healthcare. Michael Ash has practiced and taught the principles and practices of functional medicine for 20 years and is going to explain why he thinks the UK and other nations need to move their medical and allied professional training to incorporate these ideas as taught by the not-for-profit medical education group, the Institute of Functional Medicine. Thank you. As you can see, that cut at least a minute out of my presentation. I'm going to try and use the five W's that investigators use for trying to solve a problem, as in who, what, where, when and why, but I'm going to reverse them to explain to you as quickly as I can and succinctly as I can a 20-year evolution in training for medical practitioners. I'm sorry for the panel who might get a stiff neck on this one, but why do we need uh, functional medicine? Can we have the volume down just a little? First of all, much of global health problems these days are based around behaviours. Uh, and that's including overeating with undernourishment, smoking, excessive alcohol intake, physical inactivity, environmental exposures and stress. And most people recognize these as being a problem and yet continue to do them even in the face of adverse consequences. And where is this happening? It's happening everywhere. Non-communicable diseases now claim 63% of all the deaths occurring in the world today. And half of those who die, die in the prime of their life. This has a significant effect not only on them, but also on society and economics. And when is this occurring? It's happening right now. But here's some frightening statistics. In the next 20 years, we're going to be spending 19 trillion pounds treating NCDs. And in 2010, we spent 48% of total GDP in managing people with non-communicable diseases. By contrast, mounting evidence continues to demonstrate to us that millions of deaths can be avoided and billions of pounds can be prevented if more focus is put on effective intervention and prevention. 
So to corrupt an old quote from Bill Shankly, NCD prevention and treatment is not a matter of life and death. It's more important than that. So what is the problem? Why don't people change? Well, there are only two principal drivers of change. One is economic stress, and the other is loss of function. And the people they go to see to seek help for change have not been trained to manage it. Even today, even though the majority of diseases that clinicians will see in practice are NCDs, they're still primarily trained to, shoot, to treat acute disease. Yet chronic disease has replaced acute disease as the dominant healthcare problem, and 78% of health budgets are spent on it. So who's available to offer this sort of care at the moment? Well, the IFM have trained over 100,000 practitioners to date from 73 different countries. Over a quarter of the faculty from all the medical colleges in the USA have attended their basic training in applying functional medicine in clinical practice. So what is functional medicine? What defines it to be different? First of all, it addresses the underlying causes of disease using a systems-orientated approach and then engages both the patient and the practitioner in a therapeutic relationship and partnership. But why is it different? Well, there are some key hallmarks taken into care. First of all, it's a patient-centered approach. Here we're looking for patients promoting health as a vitality rather than simply the avoidance of disease. It's listening to the patient, listening to their story, engaging that patient into the discovery of their illness, and then working with them to address their own unique and personal needs. It's an integrative and science-based healthcare approach. Functional medicine practitioners look upstream to consider the complex web of the multiple interactions that have occurred in that patient's life, including their unique genetic makeup, and then combining that information together with internal issues such as their mind, body and spirit, as well as external problems including physical, social and environmental pressures that all combine to affect their functioning. It's integrated. It combines the best of Western medicine and those which are sometimes regarded as being both alternative or integrative medicine, where we focus on prevention through nutrition, diet and exercise, the use of collaborative and informative information, laboratory testing and other diagnostic tests, and then use combinations of both food supplements, foods, diet, exercise, cognitive behavioural therapy, counselling, etc. to provide a transformative effect for the patient. We tend to forget that at the heart of medicine really lies the individual and each person's story is unique. The conventional organ systems medical approach is primarily designed to get us to arrive at a diagnosis as fast as possible. And this is really significant in dealing with acute care medicine because it leads to rapid treatment. And treatment in this setting is generally designed to try and lock down aberrant physiology and control disastrous events. But what happens is that that patient's history and story is lost in the immediacy of their immediate requirement for care. So in acute care, the patient's story becomes compressed down to the chief complaint and the presenting history only, and the diagnosis subsequently grows in importance. And this presents a problem for us when the acute care model is primarily used to treat chronic care models because clinicians are typically trained to name, blame and treat the disease and try and find out the solution as quickly as possible. Little attention is paid to that patient's story behind their chief complaint. It's generally just not understood. Each major issue becomes a discrete diagnosis dealt with in isolation from the others. 
How many people have discovered the trip from one room to another to discuss one element of their problem and no one listens or takes account of their whole story? The result of this is that each problem becomes focused independently. We end up with a statin, a blocker for uh, uh, acid in the stomach, SSRIs for depression. The result is that each individual element becomes seen as a discrete problem. The whole story never has a chance to be heard or understood and the person becomes disassociated from their illness. The functional medicine model permits the clinician to choose from a large toolkit of therapies because the patient's problems are seen from a perspective of underlying mechanisms and imbalances, which can include phytotherapy nutrients, meditation, surgery, drugs, acupuncture, nutraceuticals, and exercise prescription. The key points here that functional medicine seeks to create balance in the body by looking at nutrition, hormones, inflammation, digestion, biotransformation, energy metabolism, and a calm mind. And the two questions that functional medicine practitioners try to hold at the front of their mind when they meet their patients is, what can I remove from this patient which is causing them to be imbalanced, and what can I provide to them which will give them balance? So who can deliver this at the end of the day? Well, we think there's a need for a new chronic care team. There needs to be primary care practitioners who approach disease from a systems biology system rather than an organ system taxonomy. There needs to be a combination of nutritionists and dietitians who can evaluate and then educate and engage their patients into nutritional programs to move them forward from their stuck state. There needs to be practitioners skilled in coaching, training and exercise and structural care to take care of these people. There need to be functional dentists who are skilled in non-toxic restoration of dental and oral function. There needs to be pharmacists that can compound individually. And there also needs to be psychologists and mind-body practitioners skilled in the training of the individual skills to manage stress reduction. And paramedical support teams. So finally, functional medicine should not be viewed as an alternative medicine, but as a bridge to a more effective chronic care model. And the overriding mission of IFM is to improve patient outcomes through prevention, early assessment, and comprehensive management of complex chronic disease. Thank you, Thank you. Michael. Um, so I know surgery where they have knit and natter clubs and yoga for um, patients as part of the prescription. Uh, let's open to the floor. There have been, I think, three thought-provoking uh, ideas, all of which feed in very neatly to the discussion this morning. Um, so have we any questions or comments? Uh, lady there with the glasses. Hello, um, I'm Hilly James. I'm a writer uh, and editor on healthcare and well-being. Um, I saw uh, Michael and Charlie, uh, well, Charlie nodding in agreement with Michael there quite a lot of the time. Um, and my question really is for Charlie, is given that so many of the disease, that the problems that the healthcare system has to deal with are chronic diseases, some of them have a big lifestyle component there to do with ageing, how would he say take one of them, like health to, uh, type 2 diabetes, and improve people's motivation in dealing with them? Because that seems to me to be a really big problem that people can have all the advice and support and direction in the world, but they don't necessarily act on it. Why, why don't we, and what can we do? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, our design firm Participle actually started its work um, in health 
around diabetes. And um, the first thing I suppose that we found was the most important people to reach are the people who are diabetic but don't realize it. So first of all, to call it diabetes is the wrong thing because you're not even gonna to get to them. So you need to change the language. So one of the things that we did, very simple thing, was create a pack of cards that people could use to think about their lives and how their lives were being affected by um, diabetes um, once they became aware of it. And we did this with a couple, and this guy, I mean, this is a sort of Stephen Dorrell story. This guy had been diabetic for, um, I think, eight years. He'd seen a GP 16 times in that time, same questions the whole time. And his wife, playing these cards, picked out a card that said, diabetes affects your sex life. And that question had never been asked. And the, the reason for that was twofold, really. One was um, Michael's point, that, that systems focus on conditions, and people want to be addressed as people, with conditions, maybe, but as people. And so that person's narrative got completely, it was irrelevant, really, to the health service, because it was just focused on the condition. So if you want to motivate people, you've got to really connect with them as people. And the second thing, I suppose, where I would slightly differ with Michael, is that the idea that professionals, even new, holistic, all-round functional medicine professionals will motivate people, I think, isn't, is only going to be part of it. Because what we know is that people are essentially motivated by their peers. I mean, the most important motivation is who you know and who that other person knows. So what you've got to try and create, and what the participant is now trying to do with the support of Bupa in Lambeth and Southwark, is to create a system where you can systematically commit to some goals and do it with other people and they will help you keep to it and you will help them keep to it and that that i think is part of what we've got to create thank you hi i'm emma france and i'm actually um european director of mothers to mothers one of the charities uh, charlie mentioned in his presentation and i just wanted to echo the comments um, we were, we've been doing a lot of work re recently as well as the work we do in Sub-Saharan Africa which is um, training and employing women with HIV to support other women, so very much training women to become community healthcare workers and provide peer support. Um, really sort of born out of a mathematical equation that doesn't work. Um, Africa has 25% of the global health burden and 3% of the world's doctors and nurses. You know, those statistics don't stack up, so you need a new way of doing things. And our new way of doing things was creating a whole new class of healthcare workers who would provide peer support to each other. And that's worked remarkably for us, and you know, we've reached a million women. But what's been interesting for us in the last few years is um, organisations, including uh, Bupa actually, looking to us for new thinking in healthcare and sort of south-north learning rather than the other way around, and actually looking at things like diabetes and realising that there is task shifting to be done. Um, you know, doctors and nurses don't provide, need to provide all of the information. It can be provided peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, and fundamentally, as Charlie said, and as lots and lots of, you know, barometers and research has shown, the trigger and the lever for change is, is, is peers and is um, behaviour. Okay, thank you. Can you pass it down? Thank you.
Thank you. Um, my name is Nina Grunfeld, and I run um, Life Clubs, and it's very much what what we do. I mean, we're the sort of number seven on Michael's list of of, of people that are involved in in mental health, and we've um, found exactly we're doing what what your picture was in Africa, but in the UK. So we work with. Um, uh, through, through the National Health Service, through Living Well, we work with uh, people living with HIV here. And it's, it's absolutely incredible the way they help each other in the groups. Similarly, we've been training psychiatric nurses to work with their patients in groups so that the patients can help each other, not just have to visit their nurse one-on-one -on -one each time. And um, we, I think, I mean, we, we work in corporates as well, and I think, you know, judging our last discussion, actually it's something that nurses could really do with because I feel they're very, very overstressed, and that's possibly part of the reason why they are so aggressive to, their, to the patients. But what I want to know is how do you think that could be brought more into the system as it is now? Because obviously we're dealing in certain little pockets, but it does seem to me something that could actually be useful everywhere where you know you run sort of self-development workshops for people and they can help each other so i throw it open to all of you all right well those two tie in are there any more questions that we can we take that gentleman yeah and peter uh peter york if non-communicable diseases really amount to such a huge proportion of the of the budget now then the question of how you inform people about how they live their lives becomes terribly important and disinformation and lobbying becomes terribly important and if you look at the little precedent fascinating little precedent in a recent um, a recent BBC TV program about how the sugar lobby saw off John Yadkin in a completely ruthless way. And if you look at the precedents in the US about how disinformation has increased with the internet, what do we do about that? Because that impacts very directly on all these allegedly lifestyle-related, behaviourally-related problems, and thus to the enormous budgets. How do you get to draconian without being seen to be? What do you do about it? Okay, and the gentleman in the striped shirt here. Hi there, sorry, Philip Jones from King's College. Uh, question from Michael. Uh, thank you very much for your functional medicine display, and uh, it seems like a great theoretical model. I was wondering if you have implemented this into any sort of care settings, or if you have any centres. And if you do, do you have any evidence that supports um, the benefit that this may cause, and any sort of economic health foundations of how this can uh, be translated into sorry, potentially to the NHS? Thank you. Uh, let, let's just take these. Michael, do you want to come back first sure. on those last two questions? Um, functional medicine grew out of um, essentially a private practice need uh, in, the, in the US. And so it's emerged in the last um, two decades. It's grown up considerably from its early models. Um, the University of Miami uh, now have it as a two-year component of their medical education course. Uh, and uh, one of the Western universities is starting this year doing it. 
There are multiple hospitals and centers across the US that have been using functional medicine practices within sections or divisions of their departments for a number of years now. Uh, there isn't any substantive published longitudinal data on this, but uh, money has been raised, $5 million has been raised so far to provide funding for long-term studies. Um, a lot of this tends to occur on a one-to-one -one basis and it builds throughout of a practice, but I can give you, I think in relationship to some of the other questions, uh, an interesting uh, concept of how this translates, is that a clinician, uh, once he becomes uh, cognitive about the concepts of functional medicine, often becomes in his own way uh, something of a pioneer within their community. And one uh, well-known physician in the US treated a particularly successful pastor from a uh, Southern American church, and those of you who spent any time in Southern America will know that lifestyle disease is a full-on full professional job for people down there. Uh, their dietary choices are extremely poor. Um, and he was asked when he treated this person successfully if he could put together a team to take it to their congregation. Uh, and he asked how many congregation they had, and he said he has 10,000 people attend their church uh, on a Sunday, but this is just one of 150 churches. Uh, so I gave them access to 150,000 people. It's called the Daniel Plan. You can look it up online if you wish. For 12 months now, uh, 150,000 people have participated in a functional medicine-driven lifestyle plan, which has resulted in tens of thousands of pounds of fat being withered away on rather obese bodies, restoration of people's blood sugars and blood cholesterol levels back to normal. So in many ways what we're talking about is a social spread of disease compliance. There's a general willingness to accept that the food that we're offered, uh, as the gentleman suggests at the end, driven primarily by a food industry that's long established that we have neuroreceptors that are particularly attuned to sweet fatty foods uh, which predicate uh, predictive behaviours and patterns in our consumption attitudes and then deny us the opportunity to make that change by excluding appropriate foods from easy access, either by appropriate costs or, or lack of availability. Uh, and so we have a, a global pressure being brought upon us, and whilst functional medicine is a shining beacon uh, offering itself up as a model, it has genuine uh, clinical evidence to support it. It's got great empirical studies been coming out showing how it works in communities. Because most people who don't feel well seek social reassurance that what they're going to do and change to doing is not only acceptable but beneficial. It's terribly easy not to do something if everybody else in your peer group continues doing everything that you've been told not to do. Finding this church, as an example, meant that everybody could share that experience. It liberates people from their fear of change. And then when they see the benefits, they become evangelistic themselves. So, and what about the disinformation that's, that's thrown at us? Well, inevitably, uh, your information searching tool, whether that is through uh, people that you trust or respect or from different organizations, every piece of information we see has a personal bias to it. Commercial bias, whether it be GMOs, sugars in foods, soda drinks in the US or in the UK, uh, we're assaulted every day with convenience foods that really have lost, long lost their association with food as value. The most important thing we do every day in terms of our health is what we put on our fork. That one instrument determines the success of our health more than anything else that you will choose to do. And yet we're encouraged to believe that the foods should simply be a carbohydrate-inducing, energy-providing mix of nutrients, as opposed to a biological complex of compounds that interfere with every gene expression that we're going to express for the rest of our lives. And 
The food industry have spent billions teaching you all to consume foods of low nutritive value and high fat and high sugar value. Thank you. Fortunately, this doesn't have to go on, so I shan't think too much about that. As Charlie, the point about Mother's Mothers and the Life Clubs, it just struck me that um, isn't this just another way of getting women to do stuff for free? Well, uh, it's a, you're, you're a very good point. I mean, I um, one of the places that I think this has greatest potential application is at the end of life. So if you ask people where they want to die, they by and large, they say at home, and by and large people end up dying in hospital or care homes. So I did a session when I was researching this with some uh, people who were dying in Salisbury General Hospital. And in the morning, I, I spent the morning with the consultants, and the consultants basically said, um, 800 people a year die in Salisbury General Hospital. Half of them we can't do anything for from the moment they arrive. We know that there's nothing medicine can do for them. And so we should devise some way for people to die at home. In the afternoon, I, I spent this afternoon with about 12 families, each of whom had a member who was terminally ill, and their message was, if you think that we are going to burden our families by going home and creating more stress and more anxiety, we prefer to be in hospital, even though it's kind of imperfect, than leave as our last legacy even more distress. And so the answer to that is, of course, you can't just load it on, which would be mainly women. But what people want are proper supports, um, people they can call in, peers, uh, volunteers, technology that will help them, a voice on the end of the phone, somewhere they can go that isn't a hospital when they need to. And then actually you can keep people at home for much, much longer and they can live the way they want to live at the end of life without finding themselves trapped in a hospital system where basically they're shunted into some ward where they're just going to pass away in a system that has no space for social, mental or psychological well-being. And so that is not rocket science. That's the point about these innovations, is they're not rocket science. They are simply about changing who does what and where. They are not about technology, they're about kind of culture, values and organisation. Okay, thank you. Just before we finish, Lewis, I've got a question for you, which is, years ago, after a terrible relationship with a fantasist, I bought a book by Raj Prasod called How to Stay Sane. Um, and he made a very interesting point in it. He said, most of us spend all our later years desperately trying to keep physically fit. We join youth um, health clubs, we run, we cycle, but what we don't ever take on board is that half of us will actually be felled by mental illness, not physical illness. Uh, and we need to actually start to understand what mental illness is and to start tackling it and making it part of our everyday understanding and part of our own awareness of self. Now, I just wanted to come back to you about the teaching teenagers about depression. What difference do you think it could make in the long term if we're aware of that sort of problem from, from our youth? Uh, it's a difficult question and we don't know the answer. But the one thing one can think about is that the earlier you actually can diagnose the problem, the better chance you have of dealing with it. So a better education. And the fact that you can act, I mean, also it, it could get rid of the stigma. <coughs> I know many people who are severely depressed will not go near a doctor, don't even tell their close relatives that they're severely depressed. 
I mean, it, it, it's a major, major problem. And anything that will open this up in terms of education is something we ought to pursue. Yes, and also a lot of parents who try and cover up for their children because Absolutely. they don't want it um, on their medical records. Um, thank you very much to our panel, Charles Ledbetter, Lewis Walpert and Michael Ash. We're now going to hand over to Jeremy Lawrence, who is health editor of The Independent and has been since 1997. Previously, he was health correspondent at The Times and has also worked for The Sunday Times, Sunday Correspondent, New Statesman and New Society, as well as writing freelance for a range of newspapers and magazines. And in 2011, he was named Specialist Reporter of the Year at the British Press Awards. Thank you. Thank you.